evening. How are you guys? Thank you for being here today. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, on your chairs, we've brought back something that we haven't seen in a while is our connection cards there, our connect cards. And so I'd love for you guys to fill those out today. There's some buckets uh, on the way out that you can put those in. There's also, uh, if you want to give old school, there's tithe <laughs> envelopes in there. We've been giving online a lot over these last 22 months, but you're welcome to use those as well uh, on your way out today back, back at that table. Uh, I send you greetings today from Pastor Dan and Anna, uh, who are, we're so glad they're taking some time off during this season, aren't we, as a church, and uh, I'm thankful for that, and I just want to commend you guys as a church. Every time I talk to them, they're so overwhelmed by your love and support, so give yourself a hand just for just being the church, or give your neighbor a hand, I don't know, for just being the church during this season of we're grieving the loss of our friend uh, Dave and, and Pastor Dan's dad, and so... Again, they just say hello to you, and they're looking forward to being back with us soon. Uh, but we're, we're honored today to have a, a guest with us who's going to be sharing, and uh, I'm excited. Uh, we reached out to Pastor Don James this week, and we kind of late in the week, and he was so graciously said yes. And uh, if you don't know who Pastor Don is, he was with us just, I think, within the last year or so uh, down at the Spanish church. Uh, and for years, he pastored Bethany Church over in Wyckoff, and uh, now, I think in the last two years, he's our uh, what a great time in the last two years. What a tough, challenging time. Um, he is our network superintendent for the Assemblies of God in New Jersey. And so what an honor it is to have him. He just flew in from Springfield yesterday. So thank you for saying yes, for, for helping us just pastor through this, this moment. And uh, I'm excited to hear. He told me a little bit about what the message is tonight. And so I'm excited to hear from it. Would you guys welcome a big life tree welcome to Pastor Don James. Thank you, Andre. Hey, good night, everybody. How's everybody? Well, I'd say good night, good evening. Let's not go to bed yet, right? Definitely praying this message doesn't make you want to go tonight. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I couldn't think of anything that would honor me more than stepping in with uh, with Dan. And for Dan, I don't know if he's watching online, but uh, what a great, what a great, great family, right? And uh, I think I shared at the at the uh, the funeral that uh, David. Cheryl and I, they, they were one of the very first couples we met like almost 36 years ago now when we came to, to New Jersey. They had been at Bethany Church where we did have the privilege for in excess of 34 years pastoring and uh, had just started their first senior pastorate there in the area. So we became good friends, had a lot in common and uh, been able to stay that way over all the years and watch them head to the mission field and so many good things there, but uh, we know that uh, God does all things well. You know, I don't know. I don't always understand what God does, and I'm probably like you. I have a. I'm making a list of questions. You know, how many? Are, how many are with me? Right? I'm just making a list. You know, and uh, checking it twice, right? Because a lot of things in this life we have a hard time grappling with and figuring out, but. You know, in the actually, you've been a 40, in ministry 46 years. In the 46 years, we pastored 10 years in Denver before coming to New Jersey. And um, if we learned anything, can I just help you with something real quick? Not what I'm talking about. This life is all about just trust. You're gonna you're gonna choose. Every human being chooses to trust in something or someone. You either are going to choose to trust in the atmosphere, relationships, the government, uh, the community, the nation in which we live, uh, some, other, some other means 
everybody has this element of trust. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans that God gives an element of faith to every person. Did you know that? Even the faith, if you know Jesus and he's your Savior, the faith it took to get saved, for it's by grace we have been saved through faith, that faith came from God. That's cool to me. I, I, I couldn't even come up with a faith it took to get saved. Even that came from God. And that's this abundant love. And so we learn because of that, it's just easier to trust God and his plan, even sometimes when we don't have it all figured out. We also have to remember that this life is not what it's all about. This is, we're just passing through. This is just, this is just a stop along the road. And uh, so those eternal perspectives, they, they help us so much. Well, uh, glad I could be here tonight. I'm honored to be able to share a message. Actually, I think it may be one of my very favorite messages, something that I put a lot of study into, and I, I hope it's going to help you get a little bit farther down the road with the Lord. And so I, I believe what I want to share with you tonight is really the bedrock issue of the New Testament. If you said, give me the one word that the New Testament is really all about, that the ministry of Jesus was all about concerning us as his church, it would be that word discipleship. It would be true discipleship. What, what does that mean? This was the thing that our Lord Jesus chose to be his very last conversation piece with his disciples. And I don't know if you've ever put a lot of thought into that, but you know, last words are really critical words. I was sharing uh, with one of the families, you know, with, with Noah and, and Mel about they Dave put him on the airplane last week, be, the same day that he passed. And because they'd been here for a while and couldn't wait to get back to Mexico, uh, I asked, I, we're good friends. I asked him, I said, what were, what were some of those words? And of course, I love you, we love you, we're proud of you, you know, all of these things, we're going to miss you. Last words are, are really, really important. Now, like the Greco family, I'm a Yankee fan, and so uh, sorry if you're a Met fan or who do you have down here, the Phillies or whatever the case would be. But uh, if it was a critical moment, my last conversation wouldn't be about the Yankees, even though I really like them, you know what I'm saying? Think about the Son of God. If you were the Son of God, what would be the very last thing you would want to share is a group of ragtag fishermen get ready to now take forth your kingdom. You are entrusting to them the very kingdom of God. And this has not been like the most glorious three-year run for these guys, right? This wasn't like at the end of this time that Jesus is ready for his resurrection. He's gone through that. Now he's, he's, he's getting ready to, to release them. This is an ascension day, and he's getting ready to release them into the world. And he had to be going, oh, boy, I don't think they're really ready for this, but the Holy Spirit is, and that encourages me because you may not feel like you're ready for the life God has for you, but the Holy Spirit's ready for you. And so I want to talk to you about this idea of final marching orders, these final comments that had to have been so critical to, to what Jesus felt in conveying to his followers. I remember that um, many, many years ago, my, we have three adult children, seven grandchildren, and uh, 
they're they're all grown. Both of my boys pastor two of the churches in in the the Bethany has six campuses in the Bethany Mechanism. Our youngest son is a senior pastor and uh, took our place. And uh, but when they were real real little, I remember the first time that uh, my wife Donna and I we were going to go on a date without hiring a babysitter. And you know, always before we hired hired a babysitter, we had a couple, and so we thought Jason said. He was our oldest. He said, I'm up to this. You know, I, I, will you, he actually said this, will you pay me too? And I can't actually remember if we did, but, but it was like, we'll pay you if you don't, right? But uh, he decided to do it. And I still remember, like this was yesterday, the very last conversation, stay with me, a critical conversation we had with our kids because we gathered them all together and we kind of said some things like to the two younger ones, you better obey your brother, which was fat chance, but you better obey your brother. You better do this. You better go to bed on time, You bet, and you better not do this, and you better not, probably more nots, right? You better not do that. But it was a critical conversation. Why? Because we wanted to be tough-skinned parents? No, because we loved our kids, and we wanted the best for them, and the last thing we wanted was a crisis. The last thing we wanted was something bad to happen. So it was a critical conversation. I had another one in my life, not, not that long ago, just a couple of years ago. Uh, some of the gang here knows me a little bit better, but I've always been a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. I've just kind of had this in my system. I've, to this day, I, I love my Harley-Davidson, and I ride motorcycles. And uh, I, one of my bucket list things is to ride the, the most challenging roads in the world, and I've been able to do four of them now, including the one in Stelvio Pass in Italy, which is the number one rated motorcycle road. So I, lo I love doing that. Uh, I jumped off the top of a mountain and paraglided not long ago. That was one of the things I wanted to do, and, and a few other things. But one of the things that was always at the top of my list was I'm a bit of a NASCAR fan. Anybody here a NASCAR fan? You like race cars? Yeah, I, I, I love NASCAR. I, I followed it ever since I was a little guy. And so I always wanted to drive a NASCAR. And do you know right, right up the road here at Pocono Raceway, you can do it. Now, it's not cheap. And, and so my family all contributed for one of my birthdays, I think probably six, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And they gave me the gift of you're going to get to drive a car. So I thought, well, this ought to be interesting. How, how's it going to happen? So found out it really is a, a NASCAR. It really is one of the ones that just a couple years earlier, the, the guys had had, had uh that was their car, and they kind of retired it now, and they, they had it there. So you go down, and they, they take you through all the drills, and they take you through a little school and have all the get-up for you, the fire suit, and they have the whole thing and the helmets, and they take you out on the track and teach you where all the markers are and show you how to run, and you go out there. Then, then you get in your car, and you go out with, with six other drivers, and there's a, a pace car that kind of keeps an eye on everything and one at the back also. So it's it's pretty safe, but you get going pretty good, and, and then some of the guys get going better. So we, we I, I was with a good friend of mine, and we, we timed out, and so we timed out at over 160. And it was amazing. It was, it was a really a lot of fun. And, but I never will forget the very last thing. The instructor comes up to your car, if you've, if you've done it, and he gives you final instructions. And he's like, okay, this, you remember this is what we showed you inside. Here's where it shifts. Here's where you do all that. Your helmet's all buckled in. You're, you're buckled in. And then he said this, and, and it was funny because he almost walked away. So he took this step, and he came back, and he went, 
He looked through the window and he goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, in, in, in case you turn over and the car catches on fire, you got to know how to get the fire extinguishers going. The car has fire extinguishers. And he said, see that big red button? It has to be a big red button, right? He says, all you got to do is jam down on that thing, and you'll set the fire. And so he said, you ready to go? You ready to go? You ready to go? I said, yeah, I'm ready to go. And I was, you know, the adrenaline's pumping and everything. And he takes about two steps away, and then he comes back and he goes, and don't forget the red button, right? Because you don't want to be on fire, right? And so critical instructions. Well, here's the Lord Jesus giving critical instructions to his followers because the instructions he gave them was going to be all about their marching orders for going forth from that point. And, and so he says, I want you to go and make disciples. Here's the main verse. Let's look at it put it on the screen. Go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, go. He said, all authority has been given to me. I'm giving it to you. Therefore. I was taught many, many years ago, when you see therefore, see what it's there for, right? Because you have authority. Because you're under me, because I've ascended, you know, I, I'm raised from the dead. Now, because of all of those things, I'm giving that to you. Therefore, you go, and here's your marching orders. You make disciples. And I've thought about that. I've taught about it over the years. And, and not that many years ago, when I kind of jumped in a little deeper into the study, it dawned on me, think about this. Think about this for your life. How do you make a disciple if you've never become a disciple? How do we make something we're not? So maybe it would do us good to take a couple minutes tonight, and you may know everything I'm going to talk to you about, but in case you don't, I, I think it'll be helpful. Let's, let's find out from the biblical standpoint, actually from the ancient scriptures, the original languages, what Jesus would have been talking about when he was talking about this idea of being a disciple. Because he used this language throughout his ministry. In John 13, 35, we read this. He said to his disciples, By this, every one of you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here he's talking about something that's external. People are going to know you're a follower of mine by the way you treat and love other people. There, there is an external element to discipleship. In John 8, 31, he says to the Jews who had believed him, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Now he talks about this internal thing, that there's this external, this action thing, and then there's this thing that we are, this thing that we, we become when we take his teaching into us. You know, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God is going to determine who you are, what you believe, and how far you go. And so sometimes we, we take a little these things a little bit for granted, you know, that, that we're, we're believers or, or disciples. And, and I, I've discovered over the years that we have a lot of people that like attend church, but they've never really become a disciple. They don't, they don't necessarily know what a disciple looks like. Uh, I, I always remember the story of uh, the Sunday school teacher that's teaching a bunch of little guys, and they, they've been in Sunday school, so they'd kind of learned that the answer to everything was Jesus. didn't matter what the question was. And so one day the teacher's standing up there, and, and uh, she says to him, she says, okay, so little quiz here, guys. She says, what's this little animal, runs around on the ground, gathers nuts, you know, kind of furry, has a big bushy tail, climbs up trees and everything, and nobody says a thing. 
She goes, no, 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 no. You, you know, little guy gets nuts and puts them in his mouth and climbs, you know, a little big bushy tail and nobody says a thing. So finally she's like, come on, guys. And so what, finally this one little boy barely raises his hand. He goes, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds a lot like a squirrel to me, <laughs> right? And, and so that's kind of the idea that not everything is as obvious, and that's sometimes we think the answer is disciple, but we don't really know what a disciple is. And so we're going to try to kind of fix that a little bit. Here's a little bit of where the problem comes. Most of you know that our New Testaments were, they were translated from Koine Greek, or Koine is the word for common. We have the word koinonia, all right? Everything we hold in fellowship, what we hold in, in common. Well, koine is the Greek word for, for common. So they translated the Bible into koine Greek for a reason, because it was the trade language. From the days of Alexander the Great, this language was pretty well known around the Middle East where this gospel would first spread. And so, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing in God's economy. He decides to have a language spread to places that had never spread over a couple hundred year period. He decides to have the Romans built roads. And you thought that was for armies and everything. That was for the gospel. So they built roads so the gospel could go out and they gave a language that most everybody had at least a bit of an understanding. And so let's write the Bible in that language instead of Aramaic or Hebrew, which very, very, very few people will know. And that's where we get it. So it's translated in, in from the Greek. All of our English texts come from the original Greek. And if you're a student of the original languages, you know that the Greek word that for disciple is the word mathetes. Everybody say that with me. Mathetes. All right, now you know a little Greek. Not, not the guy that owns the diner up the road, but a little Greek word, okay? And, and, and so the problem of it is, is this idea of mathetes, it, it was a word that wouldn't have been just used for Jesus followers. It was a word that was used for anybody that followed a teacher. You could have been, in, in the Greek culture, you could have been a disciple of Aristotle or Plato or Socrates. It would have been this same the word that was used, but this is the word that, that's translated. You, you would be a learner of the things that they taught. However, in Greek philosophy, the idea was the, about accumulating information. You didn't even necessarily have to buy in to the philosophy the idea is that you wanted to talk about it. You remember when Paul goes up to Mars Hill and he's, he's debating with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And he says, well, let me give you my slant on life. And they said, well, what are you babbling about? This was very normal in that culture. This is important, what I'm going to tell you. Here's the deal. The, the idea of mathetes in the Greek system was about gathering information. In the Hebrew system, it was about transformation. In the Greek system, they had no concern about what you became, who you are, where you went in life. That wasn't one of the goals of it. It was you were accumulating information and knowledge. In the Hebrew system, it was you were becoming like your teacher. There was a very, very different goal. It wasn't to hear the philosopher. It was to become like the philosopher. It was the Hebrew system was incarnational. You, you literally were transforming day by day into the one that you were following. And so we have to understand that, that Jesus, he was not a Greek. He, did, he, he spoke Greek because 
Jesus speaks every language and still does, right? But he was not raised in a Greek culture. Even though the Hellenistic culture was all over the, that world, Jesus, the Bible tells us, was raised in this little town called Nazareth. Now, if you're a student of the Scriptures, you may or may not know this, but, but in, in what, what is known as scriptural criticism, for hundreds of years there were people who were critics of the Bible that said, I don't think the Bible is true because there really was no place called Nazareth. Did you know that? And they went back to the secular historians and they said, there's never been a map in the Hebrew world, in the Roman world, there's never been a map that had this town Nazareth on there. I think it's all a fable. This man who comes from heaven is born of a virgin and grows up, ah, oh, we got you now. There is no town called Nazareth until the archaeologists discovered it about 100 years ago and verified it. And now there's been tremendous digs there, and it's totally verified. And now they have found maps where it is there. So the idea of the Greek culture, Jesus wasn't raised in that, in this little town called Nazareth. We get our Western or our secular culture from the Greek world. It's still upon us today, our world today. I'm going to give you a little bit of a curveball here tonight. Do you know that the church world as we kind of live it out is actually a little more Greek in orientation than it is Hebrew? It really is. That's a topic for another another day. But our, our church world looks more like what the Greeks oriented to than the Hebrews oriented to. But Jesus was a Jewish man. Jesus grew up in a Jewish home. Jesus uh, was very much a part of that culture, that ancient Eastern Oriental culture, where Greek culture was a Western culture. He was raised in a Jewish training system, not in a Greek training system. He wasn't trained in the philosophies. He had no interest in them. He already knew them anyway. And so when he was talking to his disciples, he would not have used the word mathetes. In these verses that we read, though we read them in the Greek, in John 8 and John 13, those verses would use the word mathetes, but that's not the word Jesus would have used. He would have been speaking to them in either Hebrew or Aramaic. And so the Hebrew word for disciple is the word talmid. I'll put it on the screen here. Or the, the plural of that is talmidim. And so talmid. These ones who came and followed him, they were his talmid. Now stay with me because this gets really important. The, again, the goal of talmid was very different than just learning. It was about, it was incarnational. That people who followed the ancient rabbis, they would begin to look like and talk like and speak like the, the very followers that they had. Remember Paul later in his life, he kind of pulls this ace out of his sleeve when they start talking about, well, who are you a follower of? And he said, I don't know who all of you are a follower of, but here's, here's, here's who I followed. I followed Gamaliel. I was Talmud of Gamaliel, and if you'll read your Bible in the book of Acts, that ended the conversation. Up to that point, there was a little bit of an argument going on. As soon as they heard that, they kind of went, mm, I don't think we want to go much deeper then. If he was with Gamaliel, the leading Hebrew scholar 
of, of the day because the goal was to become like your rabbi. And so Jesus, in training his followers, he would have been using this very same system. In Mark 3.23, we read this interesting verse. And for years, I questioned this verse. I didn't question it, but I thought, I thought it was an incomplete sentence. And it just simply says this, Jesus called his followers to be with him. You ever read that one? And I always went, yeah, that's good, but finish the sentence. Called them to be with him so they could play soccer, so they could build sandcastles, so they could go to the beach. So, No, just with him because it's about incarnation. You see, you will in some ways become like the ones you hang out with. Peer pressure is one of the greatest forming agents in any culture. And so it was still used in that day, but in a positive manner. And so Jesus was the master. That was the word master, rabbi, rabboni. And so there were, he followed this Jewish training system as, as a rabbi. And do you know that this system had been around for a couple hundred years since the advent of, of the synagogue system that came from exile back to Israel? And so Sephardic training centers were in Galilee for even a couple hundred years before Jesus. And uh my wife and I have been privileged. We, I think we've made now a dozen trips teaching in Israel. And uh, what we discovered a few years ago is the ancient, the original ancient, original Sephardic training center in Galilee is still there and still functioning to this day some 2,200 years later. Still there. They're, they're, they're still doing this. And so the, the, the rabbis who came out of those institutions, they would have gone from village to village to village and trained the little boys. They were kind of like the Methodist circuit-riding preachers of a couple hundred years ago. If you ever followed Methodism, many times these pastors would pastor four or five churches. And they go do a service at one, and then they get on their horse and gallop to another one and do another service and gallop to another one. They spent their weekend doing that, and they would pastor many. They were circuit-riding preachers. Well, that's a little bit a good model for us to think about with these rabbis that went village to village and they worked with these little boys. And we know much about this because the ancient writings of the Hebrew rabbis called the Mishnah, they actually talk about this. And so it's kind of one of the best hidden secrets in, in all of Hebrew literature. In the Mishnah, which was written just a little before Jesus and then some others about 500 years before him, it describes what a little boy living in a fishing village would have gone through in learning to be a Hebrew. So Put your sandals on with me for a minute. Let's go to the shores of Galilee. And let's look at two sets of boys that are talked about in the Bible. Two brothers. One of them is called James and John. They have a dad. He's called Zebedee. And the other is Peter and Andrew. And both biblical and ancient history tell us that they grew up in the little fishing village called Bethsaida. Little teeny tiny fishing village on the shores of north in Galilee. And so they would have been there. So in their lives, when they were four or five years old, the rabbi would have come to town and called them into synagogue. Synagogue means the gathering place or the gathering of 12. And they would have come together and they would have received instruction from the rabbi, religious instruction. And that would have been called, yeah, there you go, Bet Sefer or the house of the book. 
And they would have, even at four or five years old, they would have begun to memorize parts of the Torah, uh, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. This is how they did it. Everything was by oral learning. Everything was by oral learning in those days. And they would, have, they would have done pretty good with it. And then as they got a little bit older, they would go to the next stage, which is Beth Talmud, which is the house of learning. And they would, the, the rabbi would spend a little more time with them. And they would actually begin to memorize great portions uh, of the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about this? You go, how could that be? Did you ever think about this? Now, Peter, how many know he was just a ragtag fisherman, right? How did he step up on the day of Pentecost? and preach one of the most incredible messages after, ever, and quote scripture after scripture after scripture, and totally used apologetics to prove that Jesus the Christ was the promised Messiah, and argued from the Old Testament scripture, this is the one to come. This is a ragtag fisherman. You know why? Because when he was a young boy, the word of God was buried in his heart. And we kind of forget about that. And so he would, have, he would have known some of these things, not all of it. And uh, we had something very interesting happen in, in our home just, uh, just in the period of the last year. Because I kind of thought about, you know, we just sent some of our young guys off to, you know, to, to kids' church and stuff. And I thought, well, what, you know, are they going to color? You know, what, you know in, in my day and age, it's the felt board. Some people, they don't even know what the, you know, here's, the, here, here's felt Jesus, here's a felt manger, here's a donkey, you know. That's kind of how we, how we learned it, right? And, uh, and, and so uh, in Jesus' day, it, it worked a little bit different than that. So I thought about how this worked. I said, Do they, can they really memorize Scripture? And, and probably about not quite a year ago, uh, we, have, we have seven grandkids, and two of them up until a few days ago lived in Maryland. Now they live in South Carolina. But our eight-year-old grandson, Caleb, called us on, on fa FaceTime, right? Is that the, on, on FaceTime. And thank, thank God for FaceTime when you're grandparents that are separated from kids, right? And, and so he came on, and, and uh, all my grandkids call me Fafa. And so he said, uh, uh, Grandma picked up the phone, and he said, is Fafa there? I said, yeah. So I picked up, hey, Caleb, what's going on? And he said, hey, Fafa, uh, do you know any Hebrew? I said, well, I actually, I do know, I do know a little Hebrew. And uh, he, he, he said, uh, do you know the letter Aleph? And I said, yeah, I, I know the letter. It's the first letter in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. And he goes, what about Bet? I said, yeah, it's the second letter in the, the Hebrew alphabet. He, he's, doing a little, he's doing a little quiz for me. And he goes, hold on a second. So he goes and he, he comes to the phone and he pulls out these flashcards. And he turns one over and it has Aleph on there and then it has the Hebrew character, because in the Hebrew, they're not only a letter, but they're a character, and they have a lot of meaning behind them. And he had written out the Hebrew character Aleph, and then he did Beth, you know, and right, 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 on, right on down the line, Gamma, just right, right on down the right, line. And, and, uh, and so he did this whole thing, and I said, what in the world? And so he said, I'm teaching myself Hebrew. I said, how are you doing that? So found out he'd been going on YouTube and found these Hebrew teachers, and he'd been making flashcards. And so I, I said, put your mom on the phone. And so she came, I said, what are, why are, you, are you teaching him Hebrew? Because He goes, we don't know nothing about Hebrew. I mean, he's doing this all on his own. And so a few weeks later, he calls me back, and he goes, hey, Papa, do you know Aramaic? 
I said, I, I, I don't. I mean, I know Jesus spoke some Aramaic, and I know it came from ancient Babylon, and yada, yada, yada. He goes, well, I'm teaching myself Aramaic. Like, he had, he had Hebrew down now, you know. This was like two weeks later. And, and so now, now, I, now I'm on to Aramaic. And then, then he says, hey, Papa. Um, he said, do you, do you know what uh, Aramaic Jesus spoke? And so I said, uh, biblical? And he goes, no. He said, he spoke Syriatic Aramaic. And I went, oh, I knew that. No, I really didn't know it. But, but you know what the point was? I learned from that conversation that this is a true story. Eight, nine-year-old kids, they were learning great volumes of the Word of God. And they had the capacity to learn great volumes from the Word of God. And those that did better, they, they moved on to the next aspect of this, and they would go on, you can go to the next one here, uh, to Bet Midrash or the House of Study. But not all of the boys went on to this. This is where the young men would go, and this was the select of the select. So those who did really, really well, and this figures into the Bible story now, those who did really, really well, they were selected by the rabbi, who had now been with them for anywhere between five and ten years. They were selected by the rabbi to go to the deeper parts of study, but also at this point they would now go with the rabbi everywhere. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now they would leave home, and they would travel with the rabbi so they could be with him. We just quoted the verse. So they could become like him. And the rabbi would come to a village like Bethsaida, and he'd line the little boys up. And almost like the cut on a baseball or a football or a basketball team, a soccer team, he would go down the line, and this was the phrase that he would use. It was known as the call of the rabbi. To those that he wanted to follow, he would say, you come and follow me. You ever read that one? Come and follow me. Come and follow me. You, you go back to your father's profession. You, you didn't make it. You're not good enough. I'm sorry. You go back to your father's profession. Where do we find James, John, Peter, and Andrew in the scripture? In their father's profession. Matter of fact, in the book of Mark, I'm just reading right now, it says they were with their father Zebedee at the boat mending the nets, taking care of doing business. They were doing it with their father, and he is named. We know now, as we learn about ancient discipleship, not talked about in the Bible, but somewhere in their life, they were cut from the team. Somewhere in the life, we'll all know when we get to heaven. Told you I'm making a big list. Somewhere in their life, Rabbi Shlomo or Rabbi Eli or somebody came and said, Peter, you're not good enough. Andrew, you don't have what it takes. Maybe they didn't get this course, but maybe somebody in this room, somebody said this to you. James, I knew you were never going to be any good. John, eh, you never measure up. Go back to your father's profession. You start to see the story here? Time goes by and they didn't get the call of the rabbi. During, during that time, those that went with the rabbi, they would begin to build their own body of interpretations. 
the midrash that I spoke about earlier, it is basically just volumes of the interpretations of the law of all of the various rabbis through the ages. You know, the old joke is it started with Ten Commandments, and by the time we got to Jesus, there were 603 laws. And every one of those laws had pages of interpretation written about it, right? <clears throat> when Jesus healed the blind man and he took mud, right, and he spit in his hand and he, and he made mud and put it on the eyes of the blind man, they came and they said, you're doing work. You can't, can't do this. This is violates the Sabbath. You know where they got that? From the Mishnah. The interpretation. This is, this is what I call work. That interpretation of each individual rabbi was called his yoke. Y-O-K-E. So when we read about Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 saying, take my yoke upon you, it's much easier. The, the, the burden of it is light. It doesn't come with 603 do's and don'ts that nobody can keep. Take my yoke upon you. I know that we kind of talk about that as being, you know, a farm utensil, a, a collar that would have gone on an animal, but that's not at all what it's talking about. It's talking about a body of teaching from the rabbis. And so they would have been able to start developing their, their own yoke. One day, here these guys are fishing beside the Sea of Galilee, And Jesus comes by, probably already recognized in some dimension as, as a rabbi, as a teacher, but they didn't really know how yet. And Jesus stops, and he looks at these brothers, first Peter and Andrew, and he says, hey, you. Anybody remember what he said? Come, follow me. And they immediately dropped what they were doing, and followed him. That's another thing I never stood in the, understood in the Scripture. That same thing happens with James and John. Their father, as a matter of fact, it says in the book of Mark, their father goes, what, what are you doing? We're not done here. They immediately dropped. You know why? They just got their second chance. The ones who had been cut, the ones who had been told, you're not good enough, the ones that didn't measure up, the ones that had been sent back, they just got their second chance to follow a rabbi. Every one of our lives, we may have a lot of people in this room that at some point in your life, somebody said, oh, you don't measure up. Yeah, you can believe in Christianity, but you'll, you'll never be a real follower of Jesus. Can I tell you, in every one of our lives, there's a point that Jesus passes by the sea of our Galilee, and he says, come on, you follow me, I'll transform your life. I'm not here to give you information. I'm here to give you a transformation. I'm here to make you something you could never be on your own. That's what it's all about. And so they followed him. And the Gospels are basically the story of this handful of ragtag fishermen, tax collectors, and zealots who couldn't make the team following the Son of the living God and him pouring his life into them, learning to model everything he said and everything he, he did. And, and, and so when they were about 20 years old, a rabbi, he could begin to develop his own yoke and speak and teach in the synagogue. And then at age 30, the rabbi could go and make his own Talmud, 
That's why the Bible says that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began to call his disciples. You get where I'm going? It wasn't random. Jesus is following the system. He, he's, he is in the system. He is a Jewish man in the middle of a Jewish training system saying the system is good. It's what you're teaching that's not good. I'm going to teach you to be a God follower. We're going to teach you to be a Talmud that models the right master, the only master, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that call is still upon us to this day. Jesus is still calling every one of us to be Talmud, to be people who have authority in our, our life. So let me finish with this. How far would this go? There's an interesting story. It's in a couple of the Gospels where one day Jesus decides he needs to teach his followers a lesson. The Bible says he puts them in a boat and he sends them across the Sea of Galilee. How many know the story? Wave at me. Is this on? I, th I always looked at that story and said, you knew that storm was coming, didn't you, Lord? And he goes, oh, yeah. This was a setup, right? I knew the storm was coming. And so he sends them out into the storm, and it gets really bad, and it says they are terrified. You ought to see the Greek word that's used there because we don't really have, I think our translator said, eh, the best we can really do is like terrified. It'd be more like they are all ready to jump out of their skin. They are terrified. And, and, and so here they are on the Sea of Galilee. They're all saying this, we are going to die. And then it says, so Jesus said, let me go out there and get this thing settled. So he goes and he walks on the water to them, right? Cool story. They thought they saw a ghost, right? And the Bible is very distinct in its language, and it says, he was about to pass them by. Not really. He had a game plan. This, hear me now, was a test. And that group of disciples on that boat, terrified, thinking they see a ghost, seeing Son of Man walking on water. They'd never seen anybody walk on water. He's about to pass them by. But see, if you were Talmud, you were told you always walked as close to the rabbi as you could get. There was an ancient saying, you walked in the dust of the rabbi. They could tell who you followed by the dust on your robe. And so he's about to pass by, but he's not walking on dust. He's walking on water. And there's one disciple who really gets a bad rap from preachers like me because we tell stories about this Peter and how silly he was on that boat. How presumptuous he was. Could I argue that story with you? Could I argue that I think he was the only obedient one? Could I argue that might have been the night Jesus made the decision, I know who's going to head up this ragtag group of fishermen. I know who's going to become the predominant speaker because of what happened that night. Now, most preachers say he, did, he got silly and tried to walk on water and all of those things. I would like to suggest to you a different scenario. I would like to suggest to you that as Jesus is walking by on water, Peter comes into this little bit of consternation. He goes, okay, we have a problem here. For three years, I have been taught that whenever the rabbi passes by, I immediately 
falling with him. But they had a problem. He is walking on water. I've never walked on water. And so, if you will read your scriptures carefully, he says, hmm, Master, ready to pass us by. Master, I've been taught that wherever my rabbi goes, I immediately follow him behind him, but we got this problem called water between us. And this is what he says. Hmm. Would you bid me come? Isn't that what the Bible says? Lord, would you, you really expect me to Well, how do we do this? Men don't walk on water. And Jesus answers him back and goes, of course not. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Don't even try it. Are you kidding me? I'm God. I can walk on water. You're a man. You can't. Is that what Jesus says? Jesus says, you got it right. Give it a shot. And the Bible says that he actually did walk on water until he got his eyes on the stuff around him instead of on the one who called him. You see, the only time we really get in trouble is when we get our eyes on the stuff around us instead of the one who called us. And we all struggle with it. And there's a great lesson. When we do that, we will get wet, just like Peter did. When we do that, we will fall in place, just like Peter did. But Peter gives it a shot. And to my understanding, he and Jesus are the only two that can ever claim they walked on water. One was the son of God. One was a ragtag fisherman who happened to be obedient, who happened to be the one selected to be the primary spokesman for this group of followers. Because that's what happened whenever the rabbi passed. Let me finish with this thought. Did it all work? Did this system of Talmud work? Well, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that he ascended 40 days later. We know that he turned the kingdom over to these guys. We know they preached a great sermon, and 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. And then the next day, they're going up to the, the temple for the time of prayer, and they walked up to this man that they had walked by, I think, many, many, many times, because the Bible said he had been there for a long time. This is the way, the eastern gate, the gate that you would have entered the temple grounds. He had probably been there begging alms many times. And like a lot of the people in our world, we walk by some of the people who are in the most need. Because we're busy. Because we got religious things to do. Had to preach just a minute, Kev. I think the Holy Spirit woke him up that morning and said, you know the guy you've been walking by for years? These are Jewish men. They went up. They probably went five times a year, minimum of three times a year up to Jerusalem for the feasts. The guy you've walked by time and time and time and time and time again, today's his day. Today I'm going to use this man that looks like nothing to be a world changer. You are? Watch what happens. Follow my lead. You know the story. They go up. The man begs for alms. They say, oh, silver and gold we don't have. But, you know, the Holy Spirit was talking to us this morning about we're supposed to do something. I don't really know what it is. We don't have anything to give you except 
the name of Jesus. Let's give it a shot. We don't have silver and gold, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. And he dances through the temple courtyards, and the crowds are amazed, and hundreds, multiplied hundreds, according to Acts 3, 4, 5, and 6, come to the Lord, started by that miracle. And the religious leaders don't like it, so they call him in, and they say, what are you doing? They said, we're following Jesus. We are Talmud. They said, well, we're telling you, don't do it anymore. And they said, well, look, we got a problem here. Same problem you and I live with today. We we have to decide, are we going to obey man or are we going to obey God? So we're going to obey God. Well, it says they kind of boot him out, flog him and boot him out and say, don't do that again. It says the next day they're right back doing it again. And you know the story. They bring them back in again, and they, they're, they're, they're confused. They go, these guys. Matter of fact, one of them says, if we don't stop this, everybody. He actually uses the term the whole wide world. The whole wide world are going to be following these guys. we got to stop this. So they bring them back in, and they say two things that we're going to leave here with tonight. They're amazing. They said, number one, we're confused because the best we can figure out You are unschooled men, right? Remember that verse? What did unschooled mean? You know what unschooled meant? You obviously never went to a rabbi's training school. You obviously were the ones that were cut. You are fishermen sent back to fish because you didn't have what it takes. But now we're really confused. How are you doing the miraculous? And they can come up with only one answer. I love this. It's a backhanded compliment. They don't even know it. We perceive you've been with Jesus. We only saw one other guy that could do this stuff. We thought we put him on a cross, and we thought we put him in a grave, and we we thought this thing was all done. What are you doing? Oh, we're just doing the same thing he did. John 14. Greater things than these will you do because I go to my Father in heaven. Life tree, God has called us to great things. This is our day. As days get harder, the church of God will rise higher. As days get harder, the church of God will rise higher. As things look impossible, the God of all possibility comes to the surface and begins to work. And he does it in ragtag people like me and you. It's his specialty, and he wants to do it. So let's stand together. Nikki, maybe you can help me for just a minute here.
And I'm going to ask you a really challenging question. But it is the question. When people look at you and me, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our acquaintances, the folks in the neighborhood we live, in the jobs we work, do they perceive you've been with Jesus? Do they say, I don't know, I can't, I can't figure out much about this person, but this much I know. I've heard the stories of this Jesus and their life looks a lot like his. That's what I want set on my life. The rest of it, positions, they come, they go. Money comes, it goes. Sometimes health comes, it goes. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. So, Father, I want to pray for all of us tonight. I want to be Tom Mead, Lord. I don't want to be known as a religious follower. I don't want to be known as just a churchgoer. I don't want to be known as a religious person who has an interest in spiritual things. I think myself and all my friends here tonight, we want to be known as Talmud. We want to be known as followers, true followers of the living God. Followers, O oh Lord, that just know that when we live for you, when we study you, when we walk with you, when we fellowship with you and one another, it's all a part of becoming it's about who we are, Lord. Would you help make us disciples so that we can go make others disciples? I pray for this church. A little bit of a testing season for them right now. Dan and Anna and Cheryl, Lord, family, just lift them up. For the team here, Lord, you put together a marvelous team. Pray for all of the people. I pray that for all of us that live here in New Jersey, maybe Eastern PA, God, that this is our time. This is our time. Can we just put our hands on our heart? And can just lead us in something that would just help us get there a little bit. If more of you means less of me, take everything. That's all the Thank God.
that's our prayer tonight that you would be our everything Lord we thank you for this word tonight by Pastor Don Lord these marching orders for us as a church to go and be and let people perceive that we've been with you I pray that over our week this week Lord we'd, we'd fight for time with you Lord that your love would leak out of us that wherever we go we'd have an understanding that we carry your presence you give us opportunities this week to share your love, to share a word of encouragement wherever we go. Let that be our main motivation this week, Lord. Not to be perceived as smart or successful or having it all together. Let us be perceived as those who have been with you this week. Or whatever it takes, Lord, less of us and more of you. We love you tonight, Lord. Thank you so much. Seal this word to our hearts. Let us think about this. Let it pop up in our week, Lord. Let us be motivated by what we've heard tonight, Lord. In your name we pray. Everybody said amen. amen. Can we show our appreciation to Pastor Don and that great word? Thank you for coming. Thanks for being here with us. Church, thanks for coming out on a Saturday night. I uh, just want to remind you that we're doing our small groups, our branches. You can sign up for that in our base camp and our different communication we're sending out for that. We have connection cards here. We'd love for you to fill those out. Drop those out at the basket. Tithe uh, envelopes are also there. We love you guys. Root it tomorrow. Youth convention coming up. Have a great evening. Have a great rest of your weekend.